voices and see your beautiful faces, knowing that these are people who have been redeemed by Christ, our wonderful, merciful Savior. And we get to study the mind of Christ and we see his heart opened up for us, as it were, in John chapter 17. Title of my message is His Hour of Glory. His Hour of Glory. Let me read this introduction for you. John 17 records what we might call the true Lord's Prayer. In the Sermon on the Mount, the disciples asked Jesus how to pray, and his answer is known as the Lord's Prayer. That is really, however, a prayer for Jesus' disciples, while John 17 records the Lord's own prayer. Most Christians know this chapter as Jesus' high priestly prayer, a label dating back to Clement of Alexandria in the 5th century. More recently, scholars have pointed out that this prayer involves more than Jesus' priestly intercession for his people, that it also includes his own prayer of consecration before undertaking the cross. One useful suggestion labels this as Jesus' farewell prayer. This makes the point that as mediator between God and man, Jesus first lays his hand on the people he would save and then lays his hand on God in praying on their behalf. Jesus' prayer may be divided into three sections. And this is important for us to understand. In John chapter 17, verse 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. In John 17, 6 through 19, he prays for his disciples. In verse 20 through 26, Jesus prays for all believers who would come to him in the centuries to come. Consider that, brother and sister in Christ, this morning. The prayer contains five petitions, one for himself and four for his people. Moreover, James Boyce points out that prayer, the prayer, sets forth six distinctive marks of the church. Joy, holiness, truth, mission, unity, and love. Martin Luther commented, This is truly beyond measure, a warm and hearty prayer. He opens the depths of his heart, both in reference to us and to his Father, and he pours them all out. It is so deep, so rich, so wide, no one can fathom it. Jesus' prayer is significant as a model and example of prayer for us. It is a reverent prayer, indicated by Jesus' lifting up his eyes to heaven and by his humble manner of address. It is a reasoned prayer, reflecting forethoughts and clear biblical thinking. It is a prayer that expressly expresses Christ's readiness to do his Father's will. Just as he would pray when he later arrived in the Garden of Gethsemane, it is a believing prayer, asking God to perform the very thing he has promised to do, a prayer that is centered on God's sovereign plan for salvation. Finally, Jesus' priestly intercession is a prayer on which Christians may utterly rely we may be sure that what Jesus asks in prayer, he receives from his Father. His prayer was answered in the cross and resurrection. 
It will still be answered in the salvation of Christ's people today. And it will continue to be answered until God's mercy has brought in the last of those belonging to his son. Here is a prayer that retains its potency through all the long centuries of the gospel age. Believers should therefore study Jesus' priestly prayer with the closest attention since these are petitions that seal the certainty of our salvation through faith in Christ. So, John 17. The longest prayer of our Lord recorded in Scripture. And this morning we are going to look briefly as an introduction and we're going to look at the verse, couple of verses. And even scratching the surface, hopefully, this morning. And I hear some clicking out there, and I've heard it for a while, and I can hear from up here. If I can hear from up here, the people behind you and in front of you can definitely hear it, so I'd ask that it would uh, stop. This prayer was after the institution and celebration of the Lord's Supper. This was immediately following the discourse in chapter 14 through 16. In chapter 15, we found that the backyard, or the background imagery, backyard, yeah, background imagery, well, it could be the backyard as well, you think about that, that's got a lot of imagery. The background imagery was the temple with the luxurious vine that was decorated, and we studied that. We uh, saw, or we had our mind's eye of what that might look like. Now, right before Jesus enters, enters the Garden of Gethsemane, he very likely is in the Kidron Valley, very close to this garden. This prayer he offers up is in the presence of his disciples. Consider that, the 11 that are still there. His 11 disciples can hear Jesus Christ praying to the Father. Matthew Henry calls it the most remarkable prayer that followed the most full and consoling discourse ever uttered on earth. I have a uh, two-volume set by, I think it's Anthony Burgess, a Puritan, who did sermons on this section of Scripture, and he's got two volumes on it. And there's like three or four sermons just on verse 1. Don't worry, that's uh, not necessarily my gifting, but he is very profound in what he has to say. But we have the longest prayer of the Lord. Three main sections of who Jesus prays for. The disciples able to hear this. We also find a tremendous amount of theological foundation in this chapter. Doctrines such as predestination and election, and covenant of redemption. Also very clearly taught is the doctrine of definite atonement, also known as limited atonement, or also known as particular redemption, which is a very important doctrine to understand. It's often the last to grapple with when someone comes to the doctrines of grace. And we've all had the conversation with folks before. Maybe we were at that point when we didn't believe the biblical doctrines of grace, but we believe something else. And finally, we come to uh, the doctrines of grace, and we were at that point, a cage stage, as they call it. And maybe this, the point of particular redemption and that teaching was harder for us to grapple with. But indeed, it's a package deal, and we see it in Scripture there are a particular people for whom Christ died. Definite atonement is a doctrine that is very important for us to understand. The best treatment of this is found in John Owen's book, The Death of the Death of Christ. Also a 600-page book from, uh, it's called From Heaven He Came Down and Sought Her. It's a more modern work, very 
very good work, very thorough. And many uh, people have contributed to that. But one quote for us this morning from, from Heaven Came Down and Sought Her says this, The glory Jesus receives as the Son of God in power in his exaltation is his because he has triumphed over sin and death and hell and has lost none of those who the Father gave him. You see, there are a people who God the Father gave to the Son. One doctrine that we further understand from John 17 is, in, is, de- is definitely, hopefully, the doctrine of definite atonement. Why? Because the Bible teaches it. And it's in contrast to what is called universal atonement. And secondly, why should we understand this more? Because definite atonement gives great glory to God. And we want to be giving great glory to God in our theological understandings. Thirdly, indeed, the Lamb who has purchased a people for God, a people, not all people. When Christ went to the cross, he purchased a people. He did not purchase all people, or all people would be saved. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God. Your blood, uh, men from every tribe and every tongue, people from every nation, Well, what does this do for us in our evangelism? We just finished the evangelism class. What does this do for us, This considering that Christ died particularly for people? Well, it frees us up. It empowers us even more. The doctrine of election, the doctrine of particular redemption frees us up, and it humbles us as well, knowing that there are a people for whom Christ died, and we don't know who they are out there, but we go proclaim the gospel to all. Six of us went out to pass out tracts. You've heard of us, the evangelism class, if you have not been here. I just want to give one testimony. Six of us went out to pass out tracts at the Fisher Cat Stadium. A wonderful time of fellowship, unity, and passing out an estimated between six and 700 tracts within two hours. And very little hostility all glory to God alone. I want to give you uh, another testimony. I won't share who this was because all glory goes to God, not to this lady. But she sent me an email, and she's in this church. She said, it would be very convenient if I could buy several hundred from you, tracks, for now, and then I can check out ordering some later, or perhaps asking you to add to your next order for me. I'm hoping to go to the Greek festival Saturday, which she did, I know the fall festival in Goffstown will be coming in October. Here it is. Here's what I want you to hear. And this is a more mature lady in faith. We would call her an older lady, okay? And I asked her if I could say it this way. So I want to have all reverence. (laughs) If possible. So she said, describe me as you want to. And I said, well, I'll just leave it at that. She says this, your class both convicted and encouraged me to do much more than I have been doing. Signed an older lady in our church. What an encouragement that is. What an encouragement that is. Not out collecting seashells or whatever it may be, wanting to see the glory of God on display by way of evangelism. But as we consider John 17, as we try to scratch the surface this morning, the question is, for whom did Christ die? The question, or excuse me, the answer is the same 
answer to the question, for whom did Christ pray for in John 17? So we say, who did Christ pray for in John 17? Who Christ died for. What, who did Christ die for? What did Jesus say? Well, we recall, he says, and he died for his sheep. John chapter 10, verse 14 and 15. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Hendrickson says, it is for the sheep, only for the sheep, that the good shepherd lays down his life. The design of the atonement is definitely restricted. Jesus dies for those who had been given to him by the Father, the children of God, indeed true believers. This is also the doctrine that is taught in the rest of the scriptures, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. One example for us is Acts 20, 28. The church of God which he purchased with his own blood. He purchased the church of God. Matthew 1, 21. He will save his people from all sins. Indeed, John 10, he died for the elect. John 10, 27, verse 30. I'll read this for us this morning. My sheep hear my voice, says the Lord, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to who? To them. And they, the sheep, those who he gave eternal life to, they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. Great encouragement for us this morning, Christian. He died for all kinds of people. We have, there's all kinds of people in here, is there not, this morning? All kinds of animals. John 12, 32, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. And we will see in chapter 17 that those, there are a people given to the Son from the Father. We read verse 2. Look at verse 9 again briefly. Jesus prays, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those who you have given me, for they are yours. And in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, who you have given me, be, where, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus emphatically states in John chapter 17 that he prays not for the world. Remember, we studied who the world was in chapter 15 and how the world feels about Christ, how the world feels about us. Jesus emphatically states in chapter 17, he prays not for the world, but for those given to him from the Father. The doctrine of definite atonement ties together with the rest of the doctrines of sovereign grace. Those who are elect are irresistibly called out of their total depraved state, and they will persevere in grace until the end, because they are those whom Christ died for particularly. Our convictions as a confessional Reformed Baptist church is that God deals with his people with covenants. We find this ex these explained in uh, 1689 London Baptist Confession, chapters 6, 7, and 8. Theologians refer to these as the covenant of works, the covenant of grace, and the covenant of redemption. I'm not going to go through all of these. Read those chapters for further understanding. Again, everyone in here has a systematic theology. Uh, further your understanding that way as well. 
The covenant of redemption is a covenant or agreement within the members of the Trinity where each member has a specific role in the salvation of people. The confession says it this way. God was pleased in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten son, according to the covenant made between them to be the mediator between God and humanity. God chose him, Jesus, to be prophet, priest, and king and to be head and savior of the church, the heir of all things and, indeed, the judge of the world. From all eternity, God gave to the Son a people to be his offspring. In time, these people would be redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified by him. Known as the covenant of redemption, which is different than the covenant of grace. Covenant of redemption is not between God and man, it is between the triune God. Just briefly stated, the Father agrees to give the Son a people who the Son would redeem. The Son agrees to gather a people and guard the people, chapter 17, verse 12. The Holy Spirit applies the benefits of Christ's redemption work after Jesus returns to heaven. We study these Wednesday nights, uh, many moons ago, many months ago, Required reading for us all should be John Murray's redemption accomplished and applied. And we will find these doctrines taught in John chapter 17 along with all doctrines on along the way. I haven't gotten to my point yet. This is the introduction for us this morning. It can be difficult to subdivide, subdivide a prayer at times, can it not? But we do find three specific divisions mentioned, and these are important. I mentioned that. Jesus prays for himself. Jesus prays for his disciples, and Jesus prays for all Christians. First five verses, and then we will focus on verse one and two. Jesus spoke these things, verse one, chapter 17 of John. In lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So just some practical things to consider. We have in verse 1, of course, the Son of God praying to the Father. Jesus knew where to look, did he not? Jesus knew where to look. Secondly, he desires the Father's glory. Third, desiring his own glory so that he can glorify the Father. He has authority over all flesh, a people given to him, And Jesus is the one who gives eternal life. Eternal life is knowing the one true God, briefly stated. And then we see also in verse 4, the stewardship of his ministry. Look at that, verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Indeed, our Lord and Savior is the example for us to finish well. And 5, verse 5, his glorious reward. We have before us the prayer of Jesus Christ right before his passion. 
Anthony Burgess, Puritan pastor, says, If the words of a dying man are much to be regarded, how much more of a dying Christ? Consider that this morning. We have principles of prayer. Principles of prayer. This is really like before my first point, but it is a point for us to understand. Principles of prayer. Principles of prayer. So you can call this uh, zero before we get to one. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. Some may glorify you. Jesus knew what to say. He was a man of prayer. How did he know what to say? Because he knew the word of God. How did he know the word of God? Because he studied the word of God. An example for us. He walked with God. He was, he was in deep, close communion with God. As an example to us, he knew what to say. A man of prayer in his humanity. Jesus knew where to look. To God in prayer, raising up his eyes, looking to heaven. He knew the hour at hand. He knew time was close. He knew what was going to take place. In our vernacular, we would say, there's no time for messing around. Jesus knew how to address God, Father. And he knew the mission to glorify God. To glorify God. Here we have Jesus in this chapter, face to face with God. Ferguson says, this whole chapter is like a stethoscope through which we can hear the Savior's heartbeat. It behooves us to study and read over chapter 17 as we go along over and over and over again. We get to know someone, don't we, by talking with them face to face. This takes time. This takes commitment. This doesn't happen with cliche conversation after church, which we have and which is fine, by the way, but that's not how we get to know someone. Nor does it happen on social media. We all know that. We have the opportunity to get to know one another, and we have the opportunity to get to know Christ better as we overhear him praying to his Father, just as the disciples did. Jesus moves on from addressing them to allowing them to overhear him speaking directly to the Father. The disciples were able to see him and to hear him pray, just as they would, some of them would, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, what did they see? Jesus lifting up his eyes to heaven, which is a customary posture of prayer. Oftentimes, we don't do that, do we? We bow down and we have our eyes low, which is fine, too. There is times for that. But we can also lift up our eyes. As Psalm 123, verse 1 says, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens, praying with our eyes open. There's times to pray with our eyes closed, and there's times to pray with our eyes open as well. Jesus, a man of prayer. How did Jesus pray? How, how was he a man of prayer in his humanity? Well, we, we looked at the question, how did Jesus evangelize? We want to know, how did Jesus pray? And he prayed often. Mark chapter 1, verse 35, I'm just going to read these for you. 
Let this marinate in our minds. Let this rebuke us. Let this convict us, Holy Spirit of God, please, this morning. Mark chapter 1, verse 35. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went to a secluded place and was praying there. Mark chapter 6, verse 46. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. Luke 5, 16, but Jesus would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. And in chapter 12, or excuse me, chapter 6, verse 12, it was at this, of Luke, it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Practical nuggets galore in here for us. Finding a secluded place and to pray. I love to do this. Find a secluded place that's actually quiet and to pray. To lift up my eyes to heaven and to to pray to God. Secondly, to leave for a bit and pray. We know the sometimes when we're in an intense fellowship or intense conversation, we have to sit on our hands so that we don't react in anger. We have to really, okay, let me count my... Let me, let me take a deep breath here. Watch what I'm going to say. Maybe we have to leave a bit to cool off. How much more so do we need to leave for a bit and pray? Thirdly, we ought to pray into the night. To wrestle with God in the night watch. Jesus, when he was being crucified, he prayed. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And he breathed his last. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus, the God-man, the man of prayer. The disciples saw this. And they heard what he had to say. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. I'll let you know when we get to the points. I just don't want you to sit, be confused here this morning. I'm not confused, so. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. It seems most likely that Jesus is asking of the father that he would glorify him at the cross. Now, he is also glorified in his resurrection as he was declared son of God with power and also at his ascension. But here he is looking to the cross and indeed he would get much glory at the crucifixion when he would conquer the evil one, and when he would die for sinners like you and me. And then he would conquer death. The glory of Jesus Christ is a main thread in the Gospel of John. Glory or glorify, those words are found 40 plus times. It starts in the beginning in chapter 1, verse 14. And we studied it as well in chapter 12, which is closer to me. So I'll turn there and just read this for you. Chapter 12, verse 23. And Jesus answered him, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And verse 32, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. It's very important for us to understand, once again, that when Jesus says this, The hour has come when he says, glorify your son. He is obviously speaking of himself. He's saying, God, glorify me, Jesus is saying. 
He's speaking of himself, and this is indeed another claim of deity. For God does not share or give glory to another. He does not share his glory with another. Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. And 48, 11, for my own sake, for my own sake I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. So only Jesus, the God-man, could say these things. Only Jesus, being God, could say, glorify your son. Who was the son? Jesus was the son. Another claim to deity. And then he says, so that, for this reason, that the son may glorify you, Father. Immediately giving glory to the Father. And in verse 2, for our study this morning, we find three gifts that the Father has given to the Son. Three gifts. All of these are tied to God's glory and God's grace. Well, what are these three gifts? Well, I have four points, but three gifts. Authority over all flesh is the first one, absolute authority. Second, a people for whom he dies for. And eternal life that will be given to those for whom he dies. Three gifts the Father gives to the Son. First, absolute authority. Absolute authority. Verse 2. Even as you, the Father, gave him, Jesus Christ, authority over all flesh, the entire human race. Think about that. He has authority over everyone. There is no one outside of his jurisdiction. There are no out of bounds or state lines or whatever it may be or borders. He has authority over everyone. And all flesh could even mean all living creatures, even cats. This authority is in the past tense. Even as you gave him authority. Richard Phillips says he refers not to the authority that will be given to him in the resurrection or his ascension to the throne of heaven, but the authority that was already been given to him. What authority is this? It is the authority as the, as the excuse me, as the covenant head of the human race in the place of fallen Adam. See, everyone here is either in Adam or in Christ. Either dead in your sins or alive together in Jesus Christ. Who represents you this morning? That's something you have to grapple with or know for sure. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 says, All authority has been given to him, to Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. That's only something a Christian can say. Luke 10, All things have been handed over to me by the Father, says the Lord. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to who the Son reveals, the Son wills to reveal him. He has absolute authority all over all flesh. 
over everyone. The universal scope of authority. So that is the first gift, absolute authority over all flesh. Secondly, he has been appointed a particular people. Jesus has been appointed a particular people. A people that God the Father has given to Christ the Son. Out of the entire human race, there are a people that God the Father has given Christ to receive salvation. If you do not like the doctrine of election or the doctrine of definite atonement, Jesus refers to the doctrine of election directly right here in this verse and in chapter 6, verse 37, 39. I'll read it for you as well. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. The one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. So the question may come to our mind, which the Scripture will answer for us, and I'll read the answer to the question from Ephesians chapter 1. When were Christ's people given to him? That's the question. The answer is in eternity past. The answer is what theologians call the covenant of redemption. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoptions as sons, through Jesus Christ, to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. All are freely invited to receive salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. But only those who are chosen and effectually called will be saved. And it is for those who the atonement is particularly applied. Those who the Father has given to the Son. So there's a responsibility with man to respond to the gospel call. Absolutely. Responsibility, not ability, unless given by God. So there is the absolute authority that has been given to Christ and appointed a particular people And then thirdly, abiding eternal life. Abiding eternal life. Now, for some of you ladies who are at the the study, my understanding is, in some ways, the table has already been set for verse 3, which we won't get to this morning, but this is just extra for us today as well, for those of you who were there. Abiding eternal life. Eternal life, you gave him authority over all flesh, To all you have given him, you may give eternal life. The phrase eternal life appears 17 times in the Gospel of John. What is this eternal life? Well, briefly stated, it is to be saved from the wrath of God and to live forever with God. It's all over the place in John. I'm going to read these scriptures for you. No need to turn there. John 3, 16, one we all know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish 
but have eternal life. Chapter 4, verse 14, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall not thirst, but the water I will give him will become in him a well of water spring up to eternal life. And verse 40 of chapter 6, For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Chapter 5, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come unto judgment, but has passed out of death into life. John the Baptist said in chapter 3, verse 36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Leon Morris explains to us, Eternal life is not something that we can achieve by our earnest endeavors, our good works, our devotional exercises. If we are to have eternal life, it will be because it has been given to us freely. And the responsibility is to to receive eternal life, is man's responsibility to repent of sin and place his trust in Jesus Christ. We're not told to wonder in the scripture, to, to wonder today if we are elect or not. We're told to repent and believe the gospel. That's the command we find in scripture. So the gifts from the Father to the Son, absolute authority, appointed a particular people, abiding eternal life. Jesus is the one who gives eternal life. And it is all for the glory of God. That's the fourth point. It's all for the glory, excuse me, of God. Think about that. Think of our salvation having to do with us. Yes, we are redeemed, but it's primarily for the glory of God. The triune God is the one who gets glory out of our salvation. To the praise of his glory. That song was in my mind as I was writing this out. To the praise of his glory, to the praise of his marvelous grace. All for the glory of God. Jesus' chief end should be our chief end. His chief end was to glorify God. We can focus so much on ourselves, can't we? We forget that the chief end of our salvation is the glory of God. We can focus so much on ourselves that we neglect to pray, we neglect our brothers and sisters in Christ, the local church, we neglect to glorify God in all things. We have to remember we're no longer God-denying sinners. We are now saints who have the privilege of glorifying God in our lives. Redemption accomplished and applied is primarily about the glory of God. It is a gospel sent from heaven. It is something which angels long to look. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Imagine that. Think of that. Angels crook their neck to see such a thing that we sometimes just take for granted. We are no longer blind to his glorious glorious majesty, but he reveals his glorious majesty to us. When we consider the heart of our Savior in John 17, our perspectives and attitudes ought to change. Jesus, given absolute authority, appointed a particular people, abiding eternal life, and all 
for the glory of God. Our introduction into John chapter 17. Let us pray. Father, as we have scratched the surface this morning in the longest prayer recorded by our Lord Jesus Christ in Scripture, Help us to see the mind of Christ. Help us to see his heart as we study this, as we seek to understand this. God, we pray that if there be those in here this morning who do not know Christ, who've never bowed the knee to the Savior, who've never looked to the cross, who have never asked for forgiveness of their sins, God, we pray that today would be the day that you would invade their souls. Today would be the day that you would save them from their lost state. Draw them to yourself, we ask. For there is only forgiveness found in Christ. Let them see that today, Lord. And for those of us who know you, help us to be people of prayer in a time where we need prayer more than ever, it seems. To the praise of your glory, to the praise of your wondrous grace, in Jesus' name, amen.